Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for braving the time change to be here this morning. How many of you, um, you honestly think this is the nine o'clock service? Anybody? Some of y'all are like, what? This is 1030? Thank you for being here. Again, whether this is your first time with us or you've been uh, attending here for, for a while, we are always glad you've chosen to spend some of your Sunday morning worshiping with us at the Vista. This week, we are in week three of our series on conflict called Fakers, Breakers, and Makers. And we're just talking about how, um, you know, conflict is an inevitable part of life. We've said that over the last few weeks. None of us are getting out of life conflict-free because at the end of the day, we are sinful people. We are selfish. We tend to think we are right and everybody else is wrong. And as a result of that, we are going to have conflict. Uh, We are going to be in conflict with those closest to us. We're going to be in conflict with people we don't know. There are going to be people in this life that, you know, we're told we should think of as enemies. And that brings us to our sermon today, Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. We are going to look at what is quite possibly the most difficult thing that Jesus asks us to do. The most difficult thing that Jesus asks us to do. It is something that with every fiber of our being, we just simply do not want to do. It's like when you, um, you know, you ask or tell my seven-year-old that it's time for bed, Right? Tell my seven-year-old it's time for bed. His response is usually, ugh. Just like, you know, it's like the worst thing ever to, to tell him it's time for bed. Just a couple days ago, we walked in. It was like 10 o'clock. We were, it was late, really late, like hours later than he normally goes to bed. And I said, hey, buddy, it is time for bed. And he did his typical uh, moaning, I don't want to go to bed. And I said, well, bud, here's your options. You either have to go to bed or we have to trade you to a different family. And without missing a beat, he was in the middle of something. He literally just goes, I'll just go to a new family. (laughs) That was his response. You know, when when, when we're asked to do something that with every fiber of our being, we simply just do not want to do, that that tends to be the way we respond. That is how what Jesus asks his followers to do, that that is how, that's how this is going to feel today, right? So Matthew chapter five, um, I will read what Jesus asks us to do. Here's what it says. Beginning in verse 43, you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers or sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Loving your enemies may be the most difficult thing that we are ever asked to do. And yet, I would also submit to you that it may be the most Christ-like or God-like thing that we can do. God loving his enemies is the essence of the gospel, right? If God didn't love his enemies, there wouldn't be any Christians, right? That is literally, we're asked to love enemies the way that that God loved his, his enemies. It's this unbelievably difficult thing that we're asked to do. And if you think about it, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, like every sermon in this series so far has been in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the largest block of teaching that we have Uh, from Jesus. And Jesus is literally hopping from one subject to another. But you'll notice this familiar pattern, at least in the first part of the the message or the sermon, 
uh, where Jesus begins with, you have heard that it was said, followed by, but I say to you something different. You can look at that. We started with, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, Matthew 5, 21, in regards to anger, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Then uh, over in verse 27, in regards to lust, he says, you have heard that it was said. In verse uh, 31, in regards to divorce, it was also said. In verse 33, in regards to swearing and oaths, he says, again, you have heard that it was said. When it comes to retaliation, Austin talked about this. You have heard that it was said. And then again in verse 43, this is the same way he begins. You have heard that it was said. Uh, And then literally every one of those is followed by a few verses later or the very next verse, but I say to you, something different. I say to you something else. And so what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is he's taking their their Old Testament law and their oral tradition and what had been taught to them, their theology, if you will, that had been taught to them by their religious leaders, their rabbis, the Pharisees. This is things they would have been familiar with. This is what they would have been taught growing up. This is what is familiar to you. This is what you've heard your whole life. But now I'm going to tell you something different. That's the pattern that we follow here. And he does the same thing in regards to this one. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. Now, love your neighbor would not have been a new command. That would have been something that any Jewish boy or girl would have been very, very familiar with from the time they were really little. Several times in the Old Testament, God told his people to love their neighbor. The first time this is mentioned is over in Leviticus. I'm sure we've all read a lot of Leviticus lately, right? It's the go-to text of many people. Just kidding. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. This is the first time they're told to love their neighbor. Here's what it says. God says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the first time that it's mentioned there. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, and so uh, basically uh, love your neighbor would have been a very familiar Old Testament teaching. Um, Now, the problem is, though, with this Old Testament teaching, they had added to it a lot of oral tradition or other laws to accompany it. That's the way that they worked. There were a lot of laws. And as if all their laws weren't enough, they would add some other laws to it to kind of clarify or explain the law. And so by the day of Jesus, by the time Jesus comes along They had so twisted and manipulated the law that said, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, They had taken that so far as a license to hate other people. There is no Old Testament law anywhere that says you should hate your enemy. That's not a commandment. You're not going to find like the 11th commandment we've been missing all this time. Hate your enemy. It's not in the Bible. There's There's not a law or command that declares you can hate your enemy. In fact, there are several places in the Old Testament that will echo some things Jesus said in the New Testament about actually caring for your enemy. Uh, I'll give you one in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21, Old Testament. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. That sounds really familiar. That sounds very similar to something Jesus told us to do towards our enemies, right? So there's no command in the Old Testament to hate your enemy, and yet by the day of Jesus, they had taken this love your neighbor, and they'd used it as a license to hate everyone else. Well, how do they get there? How do they get to the hate your enemy when Jesus and God said, clearly love your, love your neighbor? Well, they got there by narrowly defining who a neighbor is. They very narrowly defined neighbor. And so by the day of Jesus... 
a neighbor was first of all, you know, Jewish. They didn't, they didn't like Gentiles. And so neighbor they defined as, first of all, they had to be Jewish, but they didn't love all Jewish people because they hated tax collectors. And uh, in fact, John 7 then says that they thought of the rabble or the lower socioeconomic, people of lower socioeconomic status, they thought of them as the, the rabble or cursed by God. They, they viewed that if, if that was your, your, your lot in life, that you were somehow cursed by God. So basically, neighbor began to be defined as relatives and really close friends that are, that are like you in every way. Spiritually, racially, socioeconomically, in every way, the people you're supposed to love are the people that are just like you. And then there's a license in that. If that's all you have to love, then you're allowed to hate everybody else or view everybody else as an enemy. That's the way they thought. That's why Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and goes, hey, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Your enemies might in fact even be your neighbor, right? In fact, Jesus uh, comes along and completely just shatters their idea of who a neighbor is. Um, some of you are very familiar with what is really one of Jesus's most familiar, most, most popular parables. Uh, he tells a parable called the Good Samaritan. Some of y'all heard the story of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke chapter 10. If you wanna, I'll read it. I'll read it for us for those that haven't heard it. But I would remind you that Jesus tells this very popular parable in response to a question about who is your neighbor. That's the question asked. And I love the way, this is kind of the pattern of Jesus. Someone asks him a direct question and they want a direct response, but instead he tells a story, right? Isn't that a great way to respond? Like if, if you come to me or Austin and you're like, hey, help me with this thing. And we just go, well, once there was a man traveling down a road and we just, we just told you a story. That's what Jesus does. He tells a story. So in Luke 10, I'll read it really fast. Verse 25 We'll set it up this way. Behold, a lawyer stood uh, up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test. So his whole purpose in asking the question is to try to test Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, uh, he said this to him, and Jesus said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. So Jesus basically simplifies the law. That was the way that you simplify the law. We mentioned there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament, way too many to keep track of. Most of us are most familiar with 10 of them, the 10 commandments, right? But even that, those 10, that's really hard to remember and to follow all of those. And so the way it's summed up is love God and love people, Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you will follow the law. The first five commandments of the 10 are about our relationship with God. So if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, guess what? You've taken care of those five. You won't break any of those first five. The second half of the 10 commandments are about our relationship with other people. And so if you just love your neighbor as yourself, you won't break any of the next five either. So basically, it's the summation of the law, love. Love God and love people, and you'll be good. And so the, the guy answers correctly, and Jesus is like, hey, congratulations, just do that, and you'll be fine. And then it says in verse 28, uh, I'm sorry, verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Here's what he's asking. He's literally asking Jesus, who do I have to love? Who do I have to love? And in response to that question, Jesus tells this story. 
He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he, he fell among some robbers. And they stripped him and they beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. So a priest would have definitely been someone they considered a neighbor, Jewish religious leader. A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He ignored the guy. So likewise, a Levite, again, someone they would have considered a neighbor, somebody that certainly would have fallen into the neighbor category. Levite came, and when, when he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan would have definitely been somebody they would not consider a neighbor. A Samaritans, they were hated, they were despised, they, they practiced sort of a, a half religion that, that most Jewish people considered, uh, you know, um, wrong and wicked and evil, and, and, and they weren't uh, racially, socioeconomically, in every way, they would have not considered a Samaritan a neighbor that they had to love. They would have very much considered them an enemy they did not have to love. But the way Jesus tells the story, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, well, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii or, or coins and he, he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Again, most of us are familiar with the story, but we may have forgotten that it was literally told in response to a question about who's my neighbor and who do I have to love? Because by the day of Jesus, they had so narrowly defined neighbor to mean that you only had to love people that were like you in the same place in life that you were, same religion, same race, same socioeconomic status, and everybody else you're allowed to hate. But that was never the way of God. That was never a command given to him by God. So Jesus comes along and he just radically reshapes their idea. He redefines who our neighbor is by telling the story. And in essence, he's saying, look, your, your neighbor, the people you're supposed to love, may in fact be the very people that the world would say should be your enemy. He narrowly defined who the neighbor is. When people come to me, when we talk about loving your, loving your enemies, um, one of the biggest questions that we always get is, is How? Like, how, how do I love my enemy? And when people ask this question, they're usually coming at it from two different, two different ways. Some people really, it's a, matter of, um, it's a matter of how do you muster up the courage within you, so to speak, or the strength to actually love someone that maybe has wounded you and hurt you and betrayed you so deeply. Literally, that's one, that's one of the things people are like, I just don't understand how I am, I am able. How am I able really is the way that, that some people ask it. How am I able to love my my, en my enemy. And again, there, there's no quick and easy answers here, uh, but one thing we've tried to just remind you of, and I'll say it again, is that I believe really the only way to truly love your, love your enemy is to understand the gospel. It's going to be really hard for you to love your enemy without a proper understanding of the gospel, because the gospel is that you too were an enemy of God, that you were a sinner and, and a rebel. That's what the Bible says, that we're all, we're all sinners, and we are literally enemies of God, and yet God didn't turn his back on us, but rather God loved us. God loved us while we were enemies. And so the challenge is to understand that the only way I can love someone that's wounded me and hurt me and, and someone that is an enemy of mine is to remember, remember that I too 
was an enemy of God. And God loved me. And what I'm being asked to do is to love others in the same way that God loved me. The other thing I would say is to just remember that um, when it comes to this world, that instead of viewing enemies as objects of our hatred, what we need to do is view them as objects of our mission. This is where I think um, the church has, has, in some cases, has been trending this way. In, in other cases, I, I fear that's where the, the political winds are starting to blow. But listen, it, it's this idea that people that are opposed to God and opposed to the church and opposed to me and opposed to Christ, that they are our enemies. And so we have this idea that we need to like fight and scrape and claw and defend the church and religious freedom and defend Jesus and Christianity as if we need to defend Jesus, Right? We start to view people outside the church as our enemy and we sort of, you know, protect, protect, protect and fight, fight, fight for all of our rights when what we're told to do in the gospel is to, you know, share the gospel and to love them. In other words, we can't get to a place as a church where the outside world becomes our enemy and objects of our hatred rather than being objects of our mission the way Jesus told us. Are you following me? The church is in a, in a, in a really bad place if we start to view those that are opposed to God as enemies that are to be fought against rather than people that are to be loved and the gospel to be shared with. Does that make sense? So how do we love our enemies in that sense? How are we able to do that? Remember that we were enemies of God and he loved us. And remember that they're not objects of our hatred, but they should be objects of our mission to love them well. Now, when other people ask this question, it's more practical than that. How do I love them? Like practically, what does me loving my enemies actually tangibly look like? How do I actually love my, how do I live life in such a way that I actually love my enemies? And so what I want to spend the rest of our time uh, looking at this morning and just the brief time we have left is just some practical ways that we can do that, okay? To be clear, uh, in the Greek text, this is, this is a singular, first person singular. So he's talking about your specific enemies, okay? This is not like uh, nationally speaking. This is talking about you uh, in your life, your day-to-day world, your day-to-day life as you interact with people, who are your enemies? And he's talking about how do we love, how do we love our enemies? And the only thing I know to tell you is we got to look at the way God in Christ loved his enemies, and then be imitators of God as dearly loved children, as Ephesians says, right? Be imitators of God. And so how did God in Christ love his enemies? And maybe we can learn from that and love our enemies in the same way. So I've got six things I want to share with you really quick before we go. Just practical ways that you can love your enemies, okay? Uh, the first one of those is how did God in Christ love his enemies? Well, number one is that he was patient with them. He's patient with his enemies. We tend to be very impatient people, don't we? Maybe just me, no? We're very impatient people. Like we have a hard time being patient with people we're supposed to love, like members of our own family, our spouse, our kids, our closest friends. Like patience is really hard. But one of the ways that we demonstrate and we show love to even our enemies is we've got to learn to be patient with them the way God is patient with, in, with enemies and with sinners. Um, over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is unbelievably patient with enemies. God doesn't just immediately give sinners what they deserve on the spot because God is patient. God is patient. And Romans is going to tell us that it is, it is his kindness, right? It is his kindness that leads to repentance. And so 
One of the ways that we can love our enemies is we got to be patient with them. Listen, um, their heart may not change overnight. I know we want that. We want that really bad. But sometimes we just have to practice patience with our enemies. The second thing that Jesus does is Jesus prays for his enemies. You notice that? Jesus doesn't just say in Matthew 5, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus actually demonstrates that. Jesus literally prays for his enemies. In fact, probably the most obvious example is in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, where Jesus is literally hanging on a cross because they just crucified him. And he's looking down at the very people that are crucifying him. And he prays from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus prayed for his enemies. One of my favorite theologians and pastors was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he lived um, under the, the, the Nazi rule and, and Hitler, and he was actually thrown in prison because he, would not, um, he wouldn't submit to, to that rule. He didn't, he didn't go along with kind of what, what Hitler was doing and exterminating the Jews and, 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 and waging war. And because Bonhoeffer was a pastor and he said simply was, I cannot go along with this. Other pastors were like, well, they were making excuses for it, and they were, they were taking Scripture out of context and justifying things, and they, Bonhoeffer was adamant, no, this is not the way of God. And so he ended up, you know, going, getting thrown in prison, and ultimately he, he, he was killed for taking that kind of stand. And he was visited numerous times in a Nazi prison, and basically just like was told, man, like, look, you, you could get out of there, just say the right words, you could get out of there, and Man, I notice you're not, you don't seem to be practicing a lot of animosity and hatred and bitterness. Why are you not more angry and at your enemies, at, at, at Nazis? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of his famous quotes was that he said, this is the supreme, supreme command through the medium of prayer that we go to our persecutors and we stand by their side and we plead to God for them. So rather than get angry and, and mad and bitter and fight and rage, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent his time in prison literally praying for his enemies. He prayed for his enemies. I know that you will have a hard time continually viewing someone as an enemy, continually being hateful and bitter towards somebody that is at the top of your prayer list, right? Somebody that you are regularly praying for. It will be very hard for you to continue to express hatred towards somebody that you're regularly praying for. So praying for enemies isn't just so that God changes their heart, which God may do, but it may also be that God changes yours. So a practical way to love your enemies is to pray for them. Number three, we see that Jesus had compassion for his enemies. Jesus had compassion for his enemies. In Luke uh, 19, Luke 19, verse 41, there's a lot of examples we could look at in the Gospels of Jesus having compassion. He had compassion on multitudes. He had compassion on, on, on a lot of different people. But one of the ones that always kind of strikes me is, is this one in, in Luke uh, 19, verse 41. It says that when he, Jesus, drew near to the city, saw the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, he wept. He wept over the city. Jesus was so moved with compassion for people people that didn't know Jesus, people that didn't understand the gospel, people that rejected him as the Messiah, and yet he's moved with compassion for them. One of the ways that we can show love to our enemies is that we have a compassion for them, that our heart and our desire is not, not evil for them, um, not that they you know, you know, get what they have coming, but that ultimately that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior and their Lord and God would change their heart. 
This is part of the reason that Jesus um, healed people, right? Jesus healed people. Why did he heal people? Well, some would say, well, that was to demonstrate his power. Well, okay, that was part of it. But let's be honest, Jesus could have done a lot of things to demonstrate power. You know, he could have, he could have just, you know, flown around, right? Wouldn't that be cool? Just levitate off the ground and just be like, everybody watch. I'm sure he would have had everyone's attention, right? He could have leapt small buildings in a single bound. He could have run faster than a speeding bullet. I don't know. Could have wore a cape. He, he could have done a lot of things to demonstrate power. And yet the way Jesus chose to demonstrate his power was to heal. Jesus' healing was showing compassion for people. Jesus had compassion. One of the ways that we can love our enemies in a practical, tangible way is to have compassion for them. Number four is that God, God's just good. He's good to enemies. He's just good to his enemies. Back in our text in Matthew 5, it says uh, in verse 45, we looked at a while ago, Jesus says to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Look what he says next. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Here's the thing. God's not just good to people that love him, know him, worship him. In this life, like God's goodness extends to all people. John Calvin called this common grace. There is a common grace that is extended to everyone. Like people that reject Jesus, people that are enemies of God, guess what? They got to see the sunrise this morning also. I mean, they get to, they get to live life in community and families and and, and they get to experience the wonders and the beauty of creation. And they get to take part in the same things. They have breath in their lungs and a heartbeat in their chest the same way that we do. And so there's this common grace. There's this general goodness that is extended to God's enemies. Maybe man, one of the ways we can tangibly love our enemies is just being kind, being nice, extending just a common sort of goodness. We don't have to be hateful and bitter. We can imitate the way of God and just be good. You just be good to them. Number five is that um, God loves them enough to warn them. God loves them enough to warn them. We see this throughout, throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, God warned people. He warned his enemies through the prophets. In the New Testament, we see it even in the words of Jesus. He warns them in Luke chapter 13, verse 5. This is one specific spot where we see Jesus warning Luke 13, verse 5, Jesus is talking here and he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And you think, well, that sounds really harsh. Well, that's a warning. That's a warning. You tend to warn people that you love, people that you care about, right? Like if you don't love them or care about them, you don't really care what happens to them. Warning is, is one way that God demonstrates his love for his enemies. And then finally, number six, is that ultimately he sacrifices for them. This is called the gospel, right? Jesus goes to a cross and he gives up his life on that cross. Matthew chapter 28, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 is one of the texts that reminds us of this. It says, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus demonstrates his love for his enemies in that he sacrifices for them. You and I maybe never have a place or a time in our life where we are called upon to give our lives for our enemies. Most likely we will not. But there's a lot of other ways that we can sacrifice for our enemies. A lot of other ways, and, and one in particular 
is, is dying to our, sacrificing our pride. A lot of times it's, again, this idea that we have to be right. We have to show how right we are, how wrong they are. A lot of times loving your enemy is really all about dying to yourself, being willing to sacrifice a little bit in order to love. This is the way of Jesus. And again, I would remind you that you'll never really be able to genuinely love your enemies without an understanding of the gospel. It's only then that our enemies can go from objects of our hatred to objects of our mission. And we're told in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You may have no greater opportunity to demonstrate your sonship, that you belong to the Lord, than by how you respond to and treat your enemies. And again, our hope and our goal as the church is not that we view those outside the walls as our enemies, but again, we remember they are objects to be uh, of our mission. They are people. They are people to be loved. That's the way of Jesus, and that's what we're called to. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are grateful today that you are a God who loved your enemies. Because God, the truth is that none of us would be here if you did not. So Father, we are grateful that while we were sinning and while we were living in our sin and while we were enemies of you, that you came running with love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And Father, we just humbly pray for strength to be able to do the same. Father, I pray you'd remind us when we struggle with with our own enemies, we struggle with loving people, that you would remind us how much you loved us. And then Father, I just pray that we would practically remember the ways in which you loved people. We would remember the ways in which you love your enemies, Father, and that we could... We could practically do those things in our own lives. And God, we just confess that it's really, really hard. And it's not something that we naturally just want to do. But Father, again, we just pray that you would help us to demonstrate our our sonship, God, to show the world that we belong to you and that the way of Jesus is altogether different. So help us. Help us to love our enemies. We pray this today in Jesus' name, amen.